Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to What Future? I'm your host, Joshua Topolsky, and I'm very excited about today's show. We've got a tremendous guest. I've been listening to this podcast, which just came out it's in its early days called Stift, um, which is really about, I'm not going to get too much into the explanation, but it's a, two of my favorite things, which is uh, pornography and magazines. So we should just get into the conversation. We've got the creator and the host here, Jennifer Romolini, and she's going to tell us all about it and talk about this fascinating story. I don't know if I should bring this up, but I'm just going to bring it up. Please do. I was like, I know him. How do I know him? Because I, on my own career, was a digital media executive, and your name came up a lot. But I was mixing you up with some other guy who's a total <laughs> asshole. Oh, let's. And, um, <laughs> who and I is like, it? I want to know. It's like another boy genius who got Ooh. to be like the head of something while like no ladies were getting any funding, um, except if they were strutting around like men. So oh, it was that okay. was it. And I was so like, oh, is this going to give me PTSD being on this? You know, like. And then I looked up, and I was like, oh no, it's him. I hope not. I'm pretty. I'm pretty harmless for the most part. <laughs> I think I probably the first off, so. first off, huge compliment. I think you kind of offhandedly referred to me as a boy genius, which I like 
Sounds great, which one makes me feel youthful, which I'm definitely not, and also like a genius. <laughs> Anyhow, okay, I don't think we've ever actually met. No. But I feel like we know a ton of the same people, which is... Yeah, we know a lot of the same, all of the same scammers. Yeah, exactly. I, you know what's <laughs> funny? Um, I'm dying now to know who this person is you're thinking of, and I'm like going through... There's so many men who kind of could fit the description of like... Yeah, yeah. just like bullshitters who were just getting all the money in the time when I was working in digital media where I was like getting pats on the head and like told <laughs> that I should wear more fuck me pumps and like oh my god all did somebody no guys, did somebody actually say you should wear more fuck me pumps oh 100% that's like the least of it um I was getting pats on the head pats on the bare knees you know I, no no actual pats yeah pats real pats I now listen maybe I'm going to uh be confronted with something in the future but i feel like I, when i hear these stories about guys in media i'm like wow i'm like pretty normal or whatever yeah as far as i know it never occurred to me to like pat anybody on the head of course you know who knows well me. to be fair this was the time when like just the the worst businessmen like not a creative bone in their body like mm -hmm. it could barely even spell we're like taking over media God, i'm thinking of like, so many people right now that would fall into this yeah. category and it was like they're giving you direction and at this point i'm doing this for 10 15 years and they're saying no 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 you need a story on this right i remember some one guy was like you should put more nip slips on the web on the website and i was like i don't think women want to see nip slips sir more nip slips okay so what website was this just to, just to be so clear I was, in, I was in magazines for a long time i was in magazines for like the first eight years of my career and then then for the next 10 or so i was in digital right i was at yahoo for a long time mm, i love yahoo and then uh, come on my favorite nobody loves yahoo. Nobody <laughs> it's the best <laughs> I worked at AOL when I started in this business, so... Nobody loves Yahoo, and nobody's loved Yahoo since it was, like, a competitor with Alta Vista. Like, it's, it's not... It's time to re no. a return to Yahoo is what the world needs. I don't needs. even know what it's called now. It's, like, Verizon Yahoo. It's, yeah. like, Verizon Who. I have, I don't... It's changed names so many times. Yeah. But, no, a lot of male executives, like, sort of, like, circled through there, and um, I ran a very successful women's site for them. I mean, it was not quality, but it was very successful and met all of the demands that needed to meet. Nip, a lot of nip slips on that website. <laughs> no nip slips, but, you know, a lot of like, you know, things you didn't know you could do with your dishwasher. Okay. And like low budget recipes. It was like, uh. I understood the directive, which was let's make a USA Today for, right. uh, you know, for, for women online. And, and that's what we did. And we had 50 million unique users. And, <laughs> you know, it was crazy. It's like a broad consumer offering for the ladies. <laughs> exactly yeah exactly. i get that i get that lots of that on the internet now too much of it now unfortunately mm -hmm. we have to we have to stop we have to stop the internet okay so i've been listening to the podcast you've got this new podcast called stiffed which is about a lot of what we're talking about actually right now i assume it's on your mind yeah it's also for me i'm a magazine like freak like i love magazines yes to me this story is is such a media story about the creation of a magazine and and all of the things that can go wrong and all of the personalities and and the ways they can clash. But just to get into it, can you tell me if you okay? You're 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 describing this podcast as somebody who's never heard of it before. Could you give me the description of what the show is about and what you want it to be about? So in 1973, Bob Guccione launches a feminist porn magazine called Viva. The price of admission for these feminist 
writers, these very scrappy 70s feminist writers, very smart, coming from the Village Voice, coming from Ms., coming out of Newsweek. The price of admission for them to be able to write all of these stories that they really want to write, really progressive stories about sexuality and desire and careers and ambition and, you know, all really interesting, meaty topics. They, they published a lot of fiction, really interesting magazine. The price of admission for them is that they are in a feminist porn magazine and next to their really smart and compelling articles that have like beautiful headlines and beautiful art are these very clumsy pictures of dicks. So it was supposed to be a porn magazine, erotica magazine for women, but Guccione never let them in on any of the decisions. Now, Bob Guccione, in case anybody doesn't know, was the, the founder of Penthouse. Penthouse, when he published it, was a runaway success, one of the biggest magazine success stories of all time. It, it, it started to beat Playboy right away. He had very good business instincts. He started to show pubis because Hugh Hefner was not. I mean, that's a great, great instinct in my opinion. I mean, like, no, I mean, what it was. Yeah. And, I mean, the, and the way he showed it was not, it was not raunchy, at least then. He was, he was doing a lot of the photography himself. It was done really cheaply. Some of the people who worked for him who went on to work at startups were like working for him was how I learned to work at a startup hmm. because everything was pretty budget, but it looked really good. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he had, he's come off this like runaway success with penthouse. He's got all this money and he decides, or he steals the idea from one of his female editors at penthouse to start a penthouse for women. And he hires all of these, as I said, smart feminist scrappy writers, but he doesn't give them any say on what the erotica looks like. So the magazine is incredibly disjointed. It's like almost a parody of female sexuality in terms of its erotica and its porn. I mean, it's just these like bouncing dicks in ridiculous poses. It's all the editors are like, oh, I would have never been turned on by that. Right. But they get to write anything they want. They have a lot of money. They're paying a lot by the word. Yeah. They're hiring really incredible writers. They're doing like feminist symposiums. It's a really interesting magazine that makes absolutely no sense. Right. And it's beautiful. It's highly designed. It's expensive. And I am also a magazine freak. Like it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. I've been collecting magazines forever. When I came across this in like 2008, no, earlier than that, like 2004, actually, I had never seen anything like it. It was like, this was the magazine I had wished I had worked for. Right. You could feel that this was a time when this was writing and stories and not content. This was before we started calling what we do content. Yeah. And like, Viva never made any money. <laughs> and it wasn't about that. It was about like this sort of spirit of creativity and collaboration. And so the podcast just sort of follows the whole arc of the magazine, which is from 73 to 79. And it really tracks that entire time period, like the early 70s hopefulness, you know, Roe v. Wade has passed to 79 when the moral majority is coming in, Reagan's coming in, everything's changing. The feminist movement is is fractured. And so it's it's losing all its power. Yeah. So I really wanted to tell the story about this magazine and tell a really dorky inside baseball story about magazines, but also the arc of the sexual revolution, the parallels to today, how the sexual revolution wasn't actually that revolutionary for women at all, all of that. Yeah. Well, 
I've been listening to it. I haven't listened to all of it. I don't even know if, is all of it out yet or are you, you're releasing it now? Like it's a we're, weekly. We're in, we're in process of releasing. So I think we're up to episode as of the time we're recording this, we're up to episode four. Yeah. I think I've listened to, I started the third episode, so I'm not too, you know, not doing too bad. Your description of it encompasses a lot of, of, I mean, it's such an interesting story and the characters in it. And I have to actually say and perhaps this will make me sound like a complete pervert, but I'm interested in, particularly from these past eras, like 60s and 70s Playboy. And so I've collected a few of these types of magazines that are, you know, like, but I had never heard of Viva. Mm -hmm. And, and as soon as I started listening to it, I'm like, all right, let me Google, let me look at this thing. And it is like extremely fucking cool looking. Like it just looks like a really, really cool magazine. Yeah. I remember when I was a, a teenager, I guess, and I first saw like Nylon, which was a magazine that was not for boys, I guess, like generally speaking, it was like a girl's magazine. Yeah. And I bought issues of it because I was like, this is so cool and interesting and has such good stories. Like, I don't even care like who it's supposed to be for or whatever. And I feel like looking at Viva had a very similar reaction, but like I was looking at images of it and then listening to your show. And there's such an interesting thread of like dissonance that, that you kind of center on in a lot of uh, these conversations where in my mind, I only imagine Bob Guccione and he's sort of like this very tan guy. He's like a very tan 70s guy. He's like a caricature of 70s masculine. He's like, yeah, he doesn't even look like a real person. He's got the gold chains, the chest hair. He's greasy. The, the whole, he's exactly all right. Of it. And in my mind, because I grew up, you know, the 70s is, uh, you know, sort of I was a baby in the 70s, late 70s. But Bob Guccione was in the public light still for a, lo a long time. And he was like a figure, you know, he was like a Hugh Hefner kind of guy. But in my mind, I always imagined him as being this extra sleazy 70s guy, like, which he definitely was to some extent. But you have a ton of recordings of him talking and he sounds so much more interesting and intelligent than I think my or the public perception of him was. As you started to research this, was that surprising to you at all? I guess it was surprising, but he was a big draw for me because as soon as I started to learn anything about him, I realized that he was a fascinating character and that it wasn't going to be easy to just paint him as a villain, which who wants that? Who wants like a boring villain? He was multifaceted and right. he didn't really want to be a pornographer. He wanted to be an artist. Like he really wanted to be an artist. He moved to Europe when he was like in his early twenties with like a couple of paintbrushes and $24. And I actually own one of his lithographs. Like oh, wow. his, his style's like very like Picasso wannabe, you know, <laughs> but he really, he really loved art. And he really loved women. And he was still a product of his time, you know, in terms of gender roles and, you know, his masculinity and like dominating and everything else. And he was also Italian-American, which was also interesting for me because I'm Italian-American. But he was a really complicated person and I think did a lot of good for a lot of people. He was really loyal. He paid women really well. He made women executives. You know, a lot of the women I spoke to said he made my career. He let me, that's where I came alive was working under him. Like it's when it was the best time of my life. Right. And I don't hear that shit about Hugh Hefner. I mean, that is interesting. Hefner, certainly a larger figure on like this, on the global stage when it comes to this space, but. I guess not a great person. You know, I haven't done enough of like reading on Hugh Hafner to know exactly all of his flaws, though I, I understand there were many. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (gasps) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. One of the things I love about shows like yours and and in particular what I've enjoyed so far in this is like 
I didn't know any of this. Yeah. And I think I had a perception of who these people were in this place and time that was not actually square with reality. And, and so I think like kind of as an aside, not even like your main course is not like, let me recontextualize Bob Guccione for you, but it is a very interesting thing to hear. And on top of that, and this is one that I think you haven't so far, you haven't talked about explicitly, but, but at the time, like magazines were massively important in a way that they're not now. And, and I'm interested to know, like you talk about penthouse, which in my lifetime has always just been like, it's a porn magazine. Yeah. And in fact, my understanding of penthouse was like, it's not just a porn magazine, but like where playboy was known for the articles or for the great writers or whatever. Penthouse was like, it's, whatever weird step cousin that didn't care about any of that and was just invested in like showing as much as they could. Is that also an inaccurate perception of like what he'd been doing with penthouse? It is. I think Guccione had a branding problem, right? Unlike half who was like playing by the rules, super slick. Guccione was like pushing boundaries everywhere. Right. So to answer the beginning of your question, it's absolutely penthouse had great articles. It had great writers it had no problem. It had amazing celebrity interviews because the 70s people wanted to be associated with porn, which is a weird thing to say now because we can't even imagine that now, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just, a, it's a totally different life. But there was porno chic happening in the 70s. You know, Deep Throat is in mainstream theaters. Celebrities like Johnny Carson and Angela Lansbury are lining up to see Deep Throat, like proudly. It's Together? Fine. They went together no, separately, but like Jack Nicholson, like it was like yeah. a cool thing. It's like, you know, it's, it's cultural currency. Right. So they had no problem, even penthouse at the time, getting real writers, real stories. So the journalism was really excellent. Bob Guccione just wanted the world to be different. He thought it was such bullshit that we were so uptight about sex that we were so uptight about naked bodies that he just was trying to like break through every sort of taboo. And he was really brave in a way that I think Hugh Hefner was not. And he pushed limits. You know, he did the, um, oh God, why can't I think of her name? The Miss America photos of Vanessa Williams. I can't remember. Vanessa Williams. Yes. Is that right? He, yeah. Yes. He published those in Penthouse. He, he published Vanessa Williams photos in Penthouse. And people were up in arms about this. And he right. was like, He was like, look, she signed the release. She knew what she was doing. There's no reason. But also, it's not a big deal. These photos are not a big deal. Right. That comes up a lot, his attitude towards sex and and nudity. I mean, it is, he's right. I mean, it is insane, I think, particularly in America. I mean, obviously, this is not just an American thing, but we are insanely puritanical and prudish about things that don't seem like that big of a deal. And the point about like it being like this kind of, moment where like porn was having a moment is interesting because i do think it seeped into the culture i think it's much more like i think if you're like uh, you could be a huge celebrity and then you have an only fans like where you do some nudity or whatever i don't know that that's a big deal anymore like i feel yeah, like we've maybe we've moved beyond that uh, you know i i don't know like to think about all of this and to kind of think about this like liberation moment or this moment like you, you were talking about and frankly, like what what drives Viva's existence in some way is this sort of moment for women where you didn't have to be, you know, the housewife or whatever, or be ashamed about, you know, your sexuality or whatever. In in light of what's going on in the world right now, where we've got like, you know, these huge political movements that are like trying to like rewind the clock in some way. It's interesting to hear how how many women were like wanted to participate in this in this space. Like, and I think like the 
hearing like a lot of the people who joined Viva, they were both embracing like the concept that there would it would be about sex and it would be about porn and all these other things like but also that it didn't have to just be about that. And I feel like we've lost that's the thing that feels like it's missing now that like porn or sexuality or exploration of that stuff can coexist on a higher intellectual plane in a popular form. That to me is something that like doesn't exist anymore. Like we've neutered like that type of content. Like and, and I just wonder like, you know, can you talk a little bit about what what the editorial ethos was for the women working at Viva versus what Bob Guccione was trying to do? So Viva comes out of the late 60s, early 70s, pro-sex feminist movement, right? Where they're really starting to talk about the clitoral orgasm. They're starting to talk about female pleasure because the pill had come along in the 60s. So now women are sort of free to explore their sexuality a little bit, right? Yeah. And this was a very confusing time for women because- they're all of a sudden they have all this sexual freedom, but they don't have any sexual protections. There's a lot of sexual assault happening. There's a lot of men demanding that they're hip and sexy. Men pretty quickly commandeer this this sort of sexual freedom and take it away from them. Yeah, it's a, crazy. Who could imagine uh, yeah. such oh, a thing shocker. happening? Exactly. Yeah. You look at a movie like Deep Throat which is about a woman who has orgasms, um, can only have an orgasm because her clitoris is in the back of her throat and mm-hmm. she can only have an orgasm from giving a, a deep blowjob, right? That's, yeah, this is that's a, a manic- and that's medically accurate. That's a problem for a lot of people, yeah. Obviously, no. I mean, look. So, but what <laughs> happens is this becomes a mockery of everything that these women in the late 60s, early 70s were trying to do, right? Which is liberate themselves and say, we are sexually free beings. And- so what happens is men sort of commandeer it. What let's say straight white men sort of commandeer this 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 liberation, and then the feminist movement fractures in two. There's still sort of pro sex, sex positive feminists, and there's the second arm of feminism, which is the anti porn feminists like Andrea Dworkin, who say, right. you know, porn equates violence no matter what. Porn is always violent. And these pro-sex feminists are saying, well, you know, actually, actually, this could be about, you know, our desire and our pleasure. So Viva's like coming right as this moment is happening in the in the feminist movement. And it what it should have been able to do was build a bridge between the two, the two sects of, of feminism, right? Of the two sections of feminism. It should have been able right. to build that bridge and say, because they did this big rape issue that Bob actually fired a, a senior editor over because he didn't want their magazine to be about like, you know, sad issues like rape and yeah. sexual assault. He wanted it to be entertainment. I actually saw the cover of that one, which is yeah. really dissonant. Like the cover, I believe, is like a man and a woman that look like they're having a blast or whatever that yeah. I don't think is related but to the he's story. Got, he's got a gun. He's got a gun and his, or she's got a gun. He's smoking a cigar. It's, yeah, yeah. It's super. And then it's like rape. It's like the rape issue or something. I'm like, oh, OK, like what is going on? It's like, a, yes. I mean, to, to actually, it's funny, but it encapsulates a lot of the dissonance you're talking about within that magazine and within the the culture of it like is this serious is it joking like and if it's joking that doesn't seem like a good 
place to be. So yeah, interesting. He fired somebody over that issue? He fired somebody over that issue. He didn't know about it. He, he was one of those bosses who sort of dips in and out, but when he parachutes in, he knows best and like he sort mm. of fucks up all the work you, but can I curse on this podcast? You absolutely can and should. Okay. He would airdrop in. And so the other, but the other thing is, is if you ever have run any, like a, any editorial product, right? You know that one thing that you really need is cohesion. When we worked at magazines, you know, Kim France, who was my boss at Lucky Magazine, who had been at Sassy and a bunch of other places. One thing she said to me was she would open the magazine of Lucky and she would be like, you see, you know exactly where you are in this magazine when you open it. There's never a moment where you don't understand what's happening visually with the word, like the design matches the words, matches the pacing. You know, this is this goes in the front of the book. This is the feature. Well, this is the back of the book. Viva had none of that. It was just really like anything <laughs> could be happening on any page. Oh, interesting. It was like Anne Bancroft. And then the next page is like just a really over tan naked man's ass. Like, like nothing. As, okay. Hold on. The ass is, is to titillate or like, is that supposed to be like the hot part of it? It was, but it didn't make sense next to this like Q and a, right. If you ever have worked in a magazine, you know that on the, you know, on a wall of the office you work in, you have the entire issue you do the wall laid out page by page, right? Yeah. And you're looking at it and you're moving things around and saying, well, wait, does that make sense there? Does that ad make sense there? Oh, you're God, trying yeah. to create one experience, which is part of the delight of the entire enterprise, right? Yep. This was when I started to realize this was going to be a really fascinating story when I really started paging through and was like, oh, there's like... There's like nobody really in charge here. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. So I, cause I started looking, I'm like, maybe I should buy some issues of this. Cause like I really, as soon as I was listening to the story and you begin telling the tale and hearing these people talk about it, I'm like, okay, this sounds like something I want to look at. Yeah. And you look at the coverage and you're like, that's awesome. But, but it is exactly to your point. I mean, w what makes a great magazine is that cohesion. It is that yeah. you've collected all of these things that seem like they might be disparate in some other context and you've pulled them together and made them feel of a kind, like, and you've made it feel like a journey from beginning to end. That's right. That is what I love about the best magazines. Like, like, Absolutely. like in my mind's eye, I'm like thinking of the great moments in magazines that I love and the great sections, not just right. Cause you go, Oh, there's that thing oh, the that great they always rubrics, do. The great, yeah. the great cot, like everything. I mean, yeah. yes, the, they're so fun. And to do what, this ambitious thing that you're describing, which is like, going to change the conversation about like women's sexuality and all this. And it's like, Oh, well, like yeah, we were just doing whatever. I mean, is that Guccione? Is that his like air dropping in? Or is that, is it just like, they don't have the the person who's like truly every day in charge? Like how, what, how does that happen? Well, it's a couple of things, right? So it's, it's Bob Guccione and his partner, Kathy Keaton were not real publishing people. They had one success with Penthouse and that was a little bit of luck and a fluke, right? He kind of knew what he was doing. It was a little bit of luck. And then he hired some smart editorial people, mostly women actually to run Penthouse. Hmm. And then because of the success of that, he has a lot of hubris and he thinks he knows best. So he goes to the next thing and he doesn't know how to hire an editor. And when he does finally hire an editor in Patricia Bosworth, which I don't know if you know Patricia Bosworth at all, but she was she's a fascinating figure. I know that name really. This sounds really familiar to me. Why do I know that? Well, name? She was a she was a model for like Diane Arbus. She was an actress. She was, you know, in a, in a movie alongside Audrey Hepburn. Hmm. And then. 
She was a big publishing person in the 70s and 80s, and then she wrote a number of celebrity uh, biographies. So she wrote the one on Montgomery Clift. She wrote one on Marlon Brando. Oh. And that was sort of how, like, she wrote the definitive books on Is she the person who unearthed the story about Montgomery Clift with the Elizabeth Taylor story? Is that, am I thinking of the right person who... Do you know the story? Yeah, I'm not sure about the details of it, but she was the like celebrity biographer for a while. But for this minute, she was at Harper's Bazaar and Bob Guccione calls her up and he says, hey, I need a really classy editor to run run this magazine. Right. And she comes in and she really knows what she's doing. And you can really see from like the end of 74 into 75, even maybe I would say a little 76. The magazine is the best it's ever been. It makes sense. It has that sort of journey feeling. It starts and it ends. It's lovely. Mm. And then she's sort of sidelined because who knows why? The magazine's not making money. It's, you know, he's blaming on her. It's really because they can't get cosmetic ads because there are are penises in the magazine. You know, it's like... But he he blames it on her and and she winds up getting fired. And um, they went through... I think I forget the exact number right now, but I think they went through something like seven editors in as many years, which is just not enough time that's, to get people to, no, you know. That's crazy. Like an editor a year is insane. Yeah. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? 
good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. However, the idea came up, because there is a kind of dispute about who actually had the idea for the magazine, right? Right. But it seems like it was like, hey, here's a great idea. Like, I've done this. I'm sure you've done it where you go, I've got a great idea. And it's just the, you can just describe the the concept to somebody. And and it's like, hey, that would make a great whatever. Yeah. Like, I have a book series that I've been talking about jokingly for like more than a decade. And I can describe like the rough outline of the plot of this book. Yeah. But I haven't sat down or written and I have a That's feeling right. that when I do, if I do, which who fucking knows. Right. It's a lot more complicated to write the book than it is to kind of pitch the idea to somebody, right? It feels like this was like a magazine that had an awesome pitch. Yep. Like the pitch is awesome, right? Like it's really good. And when you hear like uh, uh Guccione like talking about, you know, his view on women and everything, you're like, "Oh, this totally checks out." But beyond the pitch, it's like if you don't have somebody who's driving it every day and it knows what it's supposed to look like, it's just a pitch, right? And knows what it's supposed to be and knows who it's for. Right. Who is this for? Yeah. And I think that that's always the question you're asking whenever you're putting out any kind of editorial product. What's our core audience here? And how, you know, what, how <laughs> right. do we sort of super serve them? And there was, there was not that understanding. But, you know, also a lot of these editors, the, the cool thing about Patty Bosworth, when she came in, she's in her early 40s. Most of the editors and writers who've worked there were in their 20s. It's it's harder to lead when you're in your 20s. It's harder to have that big picture vision because you just haven't done that much yet, you know? Right. Yeah. It's complicated work. Yeah. You know, I'm sort of confused though, like, and, and to your point about who it's for and who the audience is and how they get advertising stuff for a product like this, these kinds of questions exist still like as you yeah. talk about like who's the audience. Yep. I think we're actually returning a bit in media to a who's the audience? No, but for real, like who is the actual audience? Because we went yeah. through this whole phase of, oh, there's so many people out there. Just get a huge amount of people to look. It doesn't fucking matter who the audience is. Right. Or it's right. a whole generation of people that's the audience. And it's like, no, actually, like right. what you really need to do is zero in on like the small amount, but still very valuable group of people who will really love the thing that you do and give a shit about it. Yes. And what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out is like, you know, the idea is a little bit like a counterpart to a penthouse or a playboy right. for women, right? Right. And so there's a, 
great writing. Although, like the first issue or something is like Norman Mailer's in it, which is a hilarious choice. It's I don't amazing. know if it's the first issue, but it's early it on. It is. Right? It's the first issue. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite details of the whole show. It's amazing. And Norman Mailer's in like Playboy a lot, and like is I, I've always thought like it's interesting because you go back and look at old Playboys. There's like an incredible writer. And I'm not a Mailer fan. Like I know a lot of people are, but I'm not. Right. And but but he's like the quintessential worst choice, like the most perfect bad choice for like a women's yeah. publication. He's like a guy, guy who like pretty much hates women. Yeah. So it's interesting, but like, here's the thing that I don't understand. And you perhaps can shed some light. Perhaps the show will uh, at some point. Um, this is again, be sound like a really fucking dumb question. Let me think of the best way to frame this question. Well, let me well, let, Give it to me. Give it to me. Did <laughs> Did women actually want a magazine with pornography in it like that? And I'm not saying women don't like porn. That's not I'm not suggesting that. But like in the context of like a Playboy or a penthouse, was there a market demand or did the women who were coming to work at it go? I want to have these like great pieces or I want to do an issue about rape. It's it's like a topic that needs we need to be talking about more. But also it'd be great if there was like erotic imagery because we're talking about imagery. I mean, yes, it yeah. could be stories, whatever. But like these magazines dealt in Playboy and Penthouse dealt in. They sold on sexy photos, like to just put it simply. Yeah. Was there a market and was there a legitimate interest from the people who made it who were not Bob Guccione for like that type of pornography for women? So this is a central question of the podcast. And I, I think that. One of the things that I came up against again and again from all of the editors, first off, who would talk to me about their sex lives at the time and be very open about that, but then would say, oh, you know, can you cut that? Or I'm so sorry mm. I told you about the people I had sex with. Like there was a, still a lot of shame surrounding sexuality and sexual freedom for these women. Now, like I said, this was a really challenging time for them because they didn't really know what they wanted yet. And I, don't know if they can answer that question accurately, given everything they were up against, given the internalized patriarchy, given given all of that, right? Yeah. They certainly didn't want male photographers and male art directors. They didn't want the porn that was in Viva, which right. was a, men, a man's idea of what a, a woman wanted. Now, if there had actually been erotica through a literal female lens... I don't know how that would have went differently, but that was sort of unheard of. There weren't women out there shooting porn. I mean, right. there were, but it was very niche. They didn't, you know, they weren't connected to Bob Guccione. I think that Candido, Candida Royale doesn't really come along till the 80s and we really get into like really quality feminist porn. But to answer your question, most simply, none of the women who worked there wanted these dicks. What they wanted <laughs> right. was to make an Esquire for women. Yes. That was what they desperately wanted because Esquire, you know, at this time was like amazing. And they're like, why do I have to work on this stupid bullshit of good housekeeping? Right. I want to, I want to make an Esquire for women. And that everybody wanted. I mean, when I got into magazines in 2000, we were still like, why is there no Esquire for women? Right. You know? <laughs> right. No, I mean, that's why I asked because like what it feels like is like you want an adult magazine that is like addressing women as like complete human beings, not like uh, the housewife or like the girlfriend or whatever it is that all these magazines would depict. Right. Your point about Esquire and, and there are lots of other publications at the time and, and certainly Playboy was doing this where it was for adult men. Like he was trying to capture this full picture of like 
your, your experience as a man, you know, and things you might be interested in and things that would titillate you and things that would educate you and, you know, struggles or whatever. To me, it's like, it feels like it's all that, but not the porn, like for women, like it's all the, the meaty adult stuff. And I think it's interesting that like, maybe in some way at that point in time, and maybe today still like what looks like, like, I don't know, adult content's the wrong word. But I mean it in, in the most direct way of saying adult, like for people who want to think about more than just the surface shit, right? Like for, it's like stuff that's like real and, and not just like porn. But at that time, like if you didn't merge the two, like it was sort of like, how can you make the product? Right. Right. Well, because there weren't as many delivery systems, let's put it that way. Right. There just weren't, there weren't as many delivery systems for porn. Right. I mean, I, I think that. We can go down a path that I think is inaccurate and like is overly generalized and, you know, oh, well, one of the things that the women said to me, the women who work there, many of them said to me was, you know, well, women are just not turned on visually like men are, you know, women need touch, they need softness, you know. And then when I talked to some like modern day feminist pornographers, they were like, that's absolute bullshit. Right. Like straight women are turned on by by looking at men's penises. Like this is this is absolute garbage. Like that women are like soft and oh my God, read me a romance novel. You have a quote you know? in there uh, or, or an audio snippet of somebody that you interviewed saying that exact thing, which and I was like Yes. I was like, this is a thing I've heard I feel like all my life and has been like is like a a cliche about women is like men are visual and women yep. need all this other. And I'm not saying that's not true, yep. but it's also like, th yeah, this is sort of like, what's so interesting to me is like, cause it is very straightforward, but you're saying it's not, is it pictures of nude men or whatever? It's like what those pictures, how those pictures are done. Like what the, Right. Like to some extent, they were, shot, they were shot by male photographers. Right. They were shot by straight male photographers. Right. And what's what's interesting is that, you know, Viva, like Playboy, readership wound up or subscriber base, at least. I don't know about the readership. I don't know about the women who read it, but let's just say the people who subscribed to, to Viva once they really got into the subscriber list, it's mostly gay men. Right. I mean, hmm. because there were very few places. Oh, to right. See, yeah, that to, and that's sense. the same thing with Playgirl. Right. Yeah. But it also makes sense to me thinking about these these male photographers shooting male nudes. It's a male lens. It's gay men enjoy it. Right. Huh. That wasn't like 4D chess or something, right? Like it wasn't Bob Guccione wasn't like, I'm saying no. I'm making a ladies magazine, no. but I'm really making a magazine for gay men. No, I think he really thought he was making a ladies magazine. And I think that in part, you know, whether it was his idea or not, I think he did it because Playgirl had just come out earlier that year. And I think he he was obsessed with Hef Hefner. He Guccione hated Hefner. He hated everything about him. He found him to be a phony and a star fucker and huh. just like the worst. And Interesting. they were they warred with each other until Guccione died, basically. Right. So I think that Viva was for sure him keeping pace with Hefner. Oh, so Playgirl precedes Viva. By a couple of months. Because Playgirl seems like, I don't know, did, was it successful? It, I feel like, do they still make Playgirl or did they make it up until pretty recently? I feel like it never went away. Playgirl, according to Bob Guccione's son, Bob Guccione Jr. Yes. Playgirl knew it was for gay men. Like it, oh. it had a, it, it really okay. had a better idea that it was for gay men where I don't think that the Viva editors understood how many, what their, that their readership was mostly gay men or at least their subscribers. Right. 
Playgirl just wasn't as ambitious in any way. It was smaller. The trim size was smaller. The the photo shoots were not as ambitious. The The writing was for sure not as ambitious. And I mean, when I looked at old issues of Playgirl, I was like, this is like a nothing burger. I don't care about this at all. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no substance to it. Viva's dreamy and weird and magical. Like there's just so many strange things that happen in it. And then, you know, at some point Anna Wintour comes on and is the fashion editor, which is like so wild. And also every major feminist writer in the seventies wrote for Viva at some point. Hmm. And I just think that that is so I think I just can't believe nobody knows about it. Right. And I really wanted to resurrect this. I really wanted to showcase this work because one of the things that happens with not just magazines, but any kind of writing we've ever done is it just goes away. It's just gone forever. You know? Yeah. I knew this was special. I could feel it. And I I really wanted to showcase all of their work. Right. I mean, I have to say just the fact that it's been buried the way it has. I mean, like up until I started listening to episode one, Mm -hmm. didn't really know anything about its existence, nor the kind of scope of, first off, it was around for a long time, like a pretty long time, all things considered. Yeah. Longer than a lot of uh, publications that, that start these days, you know, and had, like you said, like some pretty incredible talent. Like, now, I don't know if you get more into the Anna Wintour aspect. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, she was was pretty early in her career, I assume. Yeah, she was. It was her second job. Yeah. But like, you don't hear about that mentioned a lot in like, um, when people talk about Anna Wintour that she, oh, by the way, she was the fashion editor at like Bob Guccione's like ladies porn magazine, which is cool. It's like one of the coolest things I've heard about her. But yeah, I mean, it's striking, like to your point about how things go away. You think about all the art and thought and sort of love that went into it. Yeah. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, 
I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's easier to write off this stuff, right? Because there are like, you know, dicks in it or whatever. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my work is already gone. I wrote for magazines that went under, you know, some of my favorite stories are just, they're just gone. Yeah. Right. Like maybe I have a clip somewhere, but it's just like goes away. And I don't know if that has to do with Guccione or just sort of the fleeting nature of, of all of this, you know, I don't, I don't know. Of all of this, like meaning existence or the magazine world. Well, all, well, I mean, everything, I mean, the magazine world, publishing media, I mean, think about like, you know, a lot of these women, what was interesting is a lot of them wrote books and I couldn't find their books, you know, yeah, they're long out of print. Well, yeah, we've had this belief that the internet would save everything. I mean, honestly, for real, in the 90s and stuff, people talked about the internet and you're like, you'll never lose anything ever again. Yeah. And what what I've found to be true, uh, and it particularly in in regards to things like this, to physical publications or, or, you know, things like records, and not only have they gone away, but they're almost impossible to get again, to find again, right? Like, I don't know, they're digitized versions of viva that exist anywhere like no i was like oh am i buying one like somebody selling a copy of it for a hundred dollars which yeah. is a, not a tenable way to you know keep that yeah i could build my own archive of it but it's, right, a, big, no. it's a big investment right like magazines i guess are by nature or seem seem to be an ephemeral sort of medium right like mm-hmm. you throw it out but you're done with it this month is gone like a newspaper that's right but magazines have um i feel like the stories that are in them and, and the product that they became has value of course i'm sitting in a room that just off camera there is a um 
I think you have one behind you. It looks like one of those Ikea bookcases. I think they used mm-hmm. to be called LAC. They're now called Calyx yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, or something. And uh, I have the larger version over <laughs> next to me and it is filled with magazines. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm like, I need to keep these for some reason. And I don't know why I don't crack into them very often. The other day I was cleaning up and I found Frank Sinatra has a cold. Uh, oh, which come was, on. No, really. Amazing. It's sitting just over there. I actually put it on Instagram. So I was like, here it is. Um, I forgot that I had it, like the original, you know, uh, issue. And uh, maybe that's worth something. I don't even know. But um, it was meant as an ephemeral medium, but there's so much value to it. Actually, the work you're doing is like, has interesting like archival value, I feel like, to it. I, I feel that, yeah. I think that, you know, information is just too diffuse. Like what this is all about, the nostalgia for this and why we all are like, oh, print, please, magazines, is we're all nostalgic for monoculture, right? Like we all want that moment. If you pick up a couple of magazines from 1978, you understand a lot about that year. Because magazines were so hugely influential, yeah. right? You don't have that by reading a couple of pages of a, or, you know, a couple of screens full of a website, really. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Right. And I think we all miss that, you know? I mean, everything's even worse now than it was, you know, 10 years ago. I was thinking about, I found a deck the other day, um, found an old BuzzFeed deck that I had held on. I had gotten my hands on when they were really, you know, the the, the biggest name in town. They right? were worth and billions and billions. They are worth billions. And yeah. it was a deck called 16 Ways to Viralize, right? And it was around the time of like the dress. Mm. And um, I was thinking about how quaint the dress was that we were all sort of like, is it gold? Is it blue? Right. Like it doesn't feel that way anymore. Right. right. Yeah. That's an interesting observation because the dress doesn't feel like it was that long ago. God, even saying the dress, there's a whole generation of people who probably when we say it, they don't even know what we're talking about, right? Like, if you're a person who lives on TikTok right now, you probably are not thinking too much about what the dress means when we say it. But no, I mean, you're talking about something that I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and listening to your podcast because it's so much steeped in the culture of a time that it just, we could never, I feel like we can never recapture unless we like literally turn off the internet. It's hard to, and I I mentioned this before, but it's hard for people, I think, to understand. I certainly understand it. The, the power of magazines, like, like the power of, of publications, because there weren't that many of them. That's right. It was hard. Like there were not that many time magazines because it was really fucking hard to make a magazine yep. that every, that almost every person or some amount, high amount of people in like a country would want to read it every week, you know? And I think like in one way, it's wonderful because we've distributed like information in a way that's like makes it more accessible for other people, for people who would not normally, I mean, this, this podcast of yours is about people who did not get a shot to make the kind of publication they wanted to make, trying to make that publication and getting like, yes, getting kind of screwed and, and, and defeated in the process in many ways. I mean, also having great like successes, like you said, like, and going on to do amazing stuff, but we've leveled that we, you can now, if you want to create this weirdest fucking publication that you've, you know, or, or the, a new one that doesn't exist, you can go do it. So we've removed gatekeepers, but at the same time, to your point about monoculture, we can't even imagine that Mm -mm. cultural moment of everybody reading, like seeing the cover of Time this week. That's right. And going, going, oh my God, like this, 
you know, whatever story it is becomes the topic of conversation yes. for or the New country. York magazine or, or yeah. even or even smaller, like enough people rallying around something like spy, right? Like yeah. this was but the thing is what what I really what attracted me so much to this was there was a lack of self consciousness about this because there's no internet, because they don't have to put their shit on Twitter. There's a lack of self consciousness, right? And there's also they're really working together in this very pure way of what makes a good story? What's a compelling and fun headline that will sell this? Not for fucking SEO, right? but will actually like look good and be cool. And what's the art that goes along with this story? All those creative collaborative components that I think that's what we all want again. Yes. That kind of feeling that something, it's something tangible. It feels good to make. No, I mean, this is to me is like, it's why I still feel attracted to magazines, I think, is because yeah. like you can create this singular sort of object, right? It's, and it's, it's real, it's physical. You hold it in your hands, you yeah. like, it lives in your house. Like it's not yes. an abstract floating bit of data that exists. Like, and to your point about like the SEO, and I think perhaps like if you're listening to this and you are not in the media world, which is like, I hope. I fucking hope there's a bunch of people who listen to this that that, (laughs) that you're not part of that world. But I do think it touches on these things. Like when you talk about stuff like that, if you look at the landscape of information, you look at the complaints or the arguments against like monolithic media. It's funny because this cuts slices so many ways. Yeah. When you hear people talk about the media narrative and monolithic media and how you can't trust the media or whatever, Mm -hmm. they are describing the thing that we're talking about having a desire for. Yeah. Uh, And and yet, at the time of that of that thing, that monolithic media sort of existence, people, most people, most consumers of it weren't like this is bullshit. I can't trust this. They were like, mm. these people are telling me what I need to know. Like, and, and to make a magazine like the one that you're talking about, like Viva, to add to that conversation was not a small feat because he couldn't just appear. Mm-mm. I think there's so much that is relevant like to, you know, in listening to it, that's relevant to this moment. I think particularly in just thinking about how the stories that we see and hear and read get from somebody's some unique person's brain to like into existence and and here's an example of like a lot of people striving even guccione to some extent though he in a very wayward sense like you know it's striving to make something that's legitimately you know uh, valuable to to an audience and and it, and it is uh, not cynical and yeah. not cynical which is like oh god how refreshing right I definitely, what makes me want to return to a time when like those people are making, that's, they're making the content and it's not called content. It's like just great stories. That was, that was what ruined us. When it switched to content, that was when it was over. That was it. (laughs) Do you think there's any going back? Do you think we can fix it? I don't know. Look, I mean, this podcast that I got to write, it's not going to be in the same form, but I got to write this podcast. I got to report it out. I worked with a brilliant editor who edited it. I worked with a a producer who knew when to dip in and when to like, let me kind of go wild. So this was the most satisfying creative project I've writing project I've had in, I can't even remember how long I had that same journalistic, like just thrill that I had early in my career, like chasing down stories in New York. So I don't think that it's going to look the same way, but I think that we could still tell stories. 
I think it's a perfect place to leave it. It sort of it's it kind of makes me feel a bit hopeful. I mean, I think that's a great that's a great point. Like there are, I mean, there are avenues that we didn't have that those that those folks would have never had. So yeah, you know, the fact that you get to tell this story and tell it in such detail is like it does kind of harken back to to what they were trying to do. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> uh, Jen, this has been such an interesting conversation. It's such a good listen, by the way. Like just on top of all this stuff, we're talking about all this heady shit about media. It's a fun show to listen to. It's like entertaining. You've got tons of great like interviews and co- and comments and quotes and and some like Bob Guccione texts that are read and like <laughs> it's a really great listen. So beyond the podcast, if people want to find you elsewhere, how can they how can they follow your work? I am Jen Romolini across all platforms. J e n n r o m o l i n i. That's smart. <laughs> That's smart. That's to keep it consistent and also your name. I've done the same thing. It's a very old person. It's a very old person thing to do, but that's oh. that's what I did. Yeah, it is. I think the young people are like, I'm like tiny lion or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good that's a good way to do it. Well, that way you can escape quickly. Now I can never get away from this shit. Like exactly, I can never. It's just Joshua Topolsky all over social media forever. So it's not like I can hide. No, you can't be like, anonymous. No, that wasn't me. Yeah, no. Yeah, I can't George Santos the situation. Nope. <laughs> Thank you for coming on and talking about this. And and next time you. Uh, create something a work like this you got to come back and, and tell us about it this was great well that was great i have to say i i like talking to people who know about magazines and have a love for them even if it's misguided like my love for magazines but that was super fascinating and everybody if you haven't listened to it or haven't started listening to it definitely listen to it i highly recommend it you will not be disappointed it's highly entertaining. And that is our show for this week. We're, rag- we're just going to wrap up. We're just going to get right into the end of this. We'll be back next week with more What Future. And as always, I wish you and your family the very best. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives women history has forgotten. 
we've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.